Kingdom Drama Rewind with your hosts, Laura Skog and Megan Jett. For the first time, we're reviewing a TV series instead of a movie. We're doing The Bletchley Circle, which came out 2012 through 2014 in two seasons. It stars Anna Maxwell Martin, Rachel Sterling, Julie Graham, Sophie Rundle, and Hattie Morahan. We want to note that this is a mystery series, so if you don't want the whodunit to be spoiled, please skip ahead about four-ish minutes to get past our synopsis. So it starts out during World War II when pattern expert Susan, played by Anna Maxwell Martin, language and map specialist Millie, played by Rachel Sterling, Lucy, who has a photographic memory and is played by Sophie Rundle, and the no-nonsense researcher Jean, played by Julie Graham, led exciting, purposeful lives as Bletchley Park codecrackers. Now, in early 1950s austerity London, they're reduced to drab existences. Susan is a mother and housewife to a man who sees her knack for probability and spotting patterns as an annoying quirk. Lucy is married to a man who's outright abusive. Millie's a waitress and Jean is a librarian. Susan's curiosity gets piqued when a handful of murders are reported in the local news. She thinks they're following a pattern and that the police have missed a killing. She visits Scotland Yard to present her theory and they shoot her down when it doesn't immediately bear fruit. She gets in touch with the rest of the gang, and they get drawn into solving the case. They learn that each victim is a young woman who's been strangled and then raped. The women use their code-cracking skills to track down the significance of where each body was located, finding that they all tie back to specific rail lines. They first tip off the police that they think there are three railway workers luring women off the tracks using the authority of their positions. However, after some more research into similar cases, as well as running a factor analysis, they realize that the murderer has actually been carefully framing vulnerable but believable suspects. It turns out that the real killer is Malcolm Crawley, who worked in the psychological warfare department during the war. Following a bombing, Crawley was trapped in rubble for three days with the body of a woman who he'd been sexually harassing. This incident causes some major psychological damage, and we find that he's been attacking women ever since. Over to Laura for season two. This season differs in that there are two story arcs set over four episodes. In the first two episodes, life is looking up for some of the women. Now free from her abusive husband, Lucy works as a clerk at Scotland Yard. Millie does translations for business with German firms. Susan, however, is struggling with PTSD from Malcolm Crawley's attempts to kill her during the last season when she confronts him. Jean learns of a former Bletchley colleague, Alice Mirren, who's been found guilty for the murder of another Bletchley worker and government scientist, John Richards. She doesn't think Alice did it, and she's right. Alice and Richards secretly had a kid, Liz, in the late 30s, and Alice thinks that she's taking responsibility for her daughter murdering Richards, since Lizzie had recently tracked him down trying to learn more about her real parents. Shades of Gosford Park. (laughs) After some digging, the team finds that Richards was actually murdered for his investigation of a chemical researcher going rogue at Porton Down and testing chemical weapons on British soldiers. The second arc is about Millie's role in selling black market goods, which had been referred to in the first season, albeit just trying to make her seem street smart and worldly. After selling perfumes to posh friends one night, Millie gets kidnapped by her crime partner Jasper's bosses, a group of Maltese smugglers. Jasper hasn't been paying them their cut of the profits, and Millie's life is forfeit until Jasper promises to come through with the money. They release her, but they end up killing him. She's horrified, not by just this, but what she also learned being stuck in an undisclosed place in an undisclosed location. These smugglers also sell women who manage to escape the Iron Curtain. They're selling them into sex slavery in the UK. Under the guise of bringing Jean in as another partner, the women get a glimpse at the main crime boss, Marta's ledger, which has a list of locations of draw points and times, 
but it's in code, and they have to break into Bletchley, which has since been boarded up and forgotten, to get their old machinery to crack the code. It appears Marta worked in Signals in Malta during the war, and she's been using her own Typex machine. This is the British adaptation of the German Enigma machine. After using Lucy's Scotland Yard contacts to rope in customs and excise officers, they shut Marta's smuggling operation down and find and free the trafficked girls. Huzzah! So, first impressions. I originally saw the first season around the same time as seeing an entire exhibit about cryptography at the Folger Shakespeare Library in D.C. Nerd. Look who's talking. And they even had a Typex machine on display, so it was really thrilling for me. I saw the second season this past week for this particular episode, which I didn't find quite as gripping, probably because of the shift from one story arc over three episodes to two stories in four episodes, but the mysteries just weren't as unsettling as the first season. Still enjoyable, but not as satisfyingly creepy. Laura likes to be unsettled, is what I'm learning. So I'd never (laughs) heard of this show until you brought it up. I was excited to watch it, since Britain in the Second World War is something I've gotten really into in the last few years. But I also went into it expecting to see something set primarily at Bletchley, and that was something I had to get over myself and get past. So let's get right down to the heart of the matter. The first season shows a pretty drab view of England after World War II, and it's not an exaggeration. The war was costly in all sorts of ways. The UK was millions and millions of pounds in debt. Thousands had died, not just on the battlefield, but also on the home front. Bombings had caused an incredible amount of damage to both residential and commercial property, and many vessels needed for international commerce had also been damaged. Everyone was impacted by rationing, including the then-Princess Elizabeth, who had to use rationing coupons to pay for her wedding dress in 1947. A lot of people did mail in extra coupons to help her, but she returned those. Clothing rationing ended in 1949, but as Dr. Sarah Mass, a specialist in modern British history at Sam Houston State University explains in one of her papers, there were still pricing controls and short supplies of popular items like nylons. In the show, there are references to such rations, including the characters' ration books and newspapers talking about a particularly sad affair, bacon rationing. Susan's kids also mention eating spam in school. During World War II, American GIs and the rest of the Allied forces were game-fed spam, and British and Soviet civilians also had access to it because of the Lend-Lease Act of 1941, which allowed the U.S. government to give stuff to countries that were quote-unquote vital to the defense of the United States before the country had actually entered into World War II. The act expired in 1945, but spam was still consumed because it was cheap and filling. And was consumed right up through my very 80s childhood, where it made a darn fine spam lettuce and tomato. I like the Twin Peaks reference. Oh, that was accidental. That's how deeply Twin Peaks is in my soul. (laughs) So black market goods also play a role in the show. In the first season, the circle theorizes that the killer is luring women to their deaths by offering to sell them luxuries like perfume, nylons, lipsticks. And as I mentioned, two of the episodes in season two are all about smuggling. The history of smuggling in the UK is long, but for World War II and afterwards, access to imported goods was restricted largely because of German naval forces. And then afterwards, these items were pricier, partly because there are fewer vessels available to ship in goods, but also because of the taxes on imported goods, the issues surrounding pricing controls that Dr. Mass mentioned, as well as the ration coupons people needed for some items if they got them off the open market. Forgoing the formal market was attractive, and plenty of normal people participated one way or another, not just stereotypical career criminals. Dr. Mass explains that these informal markets could be as simple as people buying goods from normal retailers and then jacking up the price later. Farmers might distribute crops outside the normal supply chains. 
Dr. Mass also highlights how popular black market nylons were in the early 1950s, so the killer enticing women by offering to sell them stockings totally checks out. During the war and even afterwards, the government considered people who bought and sold in informal markets to be unpatriotic and cheating the system. Those who got caught were made examples of, especially if they were powerful citizens. As the London Review of Books notes, our friend of the podcast, Ivor Novello, was jailed for, quote-unquote, fiddling his petrol ration. Not the petrol ration! <laughs> During the war, Lady Astor and Noel Coward also got caught. Let's talk about Bletchley Park, and specifically how it affects our characters' later lives. Most people know by now that the name is synonymous with Allied code-breaking during the war, and it's most famous for the work of people like Alan Turing and Hugh Alexander and the crew that cracked Germany's Enigma cipher. But more than 8,000 women worked Bletchley Park during the war and made up about three-quarters of its workforce. Most of them were in administrative roles, but still quite a few worked directly in various code-breaking roles, and they certainly overcame a good deal of skepticism from men up and down the chain of command in doing so. Everyone who worked at Bletchley was covered by the Official Secrets Act, passed in 1939, which bound them to silence even after the war. It was typical even for close family members to not know that someone had worked at Bletchley or been part of the code-breaking operation, and while there were occasional slips in the censors, Churchill once referred to the Bletchley staff as, quote, the geese that laid the golden egg and never cackled. The British government finally begins declassifying elements of the work in the mid-1970s, but some surviving former Bletchley staff remain silent to this day, some by a matter of law and some by a matter of choice, as they feel honor-bound to keep Bletchley secrets. Horton Down was a real British governmental research facility. It opened up in 1916 to research chemical warfare after the Germans introduced chlorine gas at the Battle of Ypres in 1915. During World War II, they researched using nitrogen mustards and sarin gas, which the Allies found in Axis stockpiles, as well as anthrax. They did experiment on humans for decades, and there were deaths, such as that of leading aircraftman Ronald Madison, who died from exposure to sarin gas in 1953, which is right about when the show takes place. His death was initially ruled as death by misadventure. It took until 2004 for his death to be ruled an unlawful killing. Death by misadventure? Is that a real legal term? It is. She's a lawyer. I trust her. <laughs> I mean, about that, not about anything else. Thanks. Because lawyer jokes. So why do they call it Scotland Yard? If you, like us, watch a good deal of British film and television, you hear the term Scotland Yard a lot. A lot. So why has it become a somewhat perplexing metonym for London's Metropolitan Police? The answer lies all the way back in Tudor times, when an embassy was established between Whitehall Palace and the Charing Cross area to house visiting Scottish royalty. This gives name to a street that connects Whitehall with Northumberland Avenue, and when the Metropolitan Police are established by Parliament in 1829, they select the site of the former embassy for their headquarters. Since they cite the public entrance on the street called Great Scotland Yard, the name becomes synonymous with the police in London. That headquarters has moved twice since then, first in 1967, about 15 years after the events of the Bletchley Circle, when it moves to the corner of Broadway and Victoria Street, before returning to the area around Whitehall in 2016, where it's still known as New Scotland Yard. File this bit of trivia away, because I'm sure Scotland Yard will make further appearances on the podcast, and it might also win you some baseball tickets in your next trivia night. So one thing that caught my attention is that when Susan enters Scotland Yard the first time, there's a really large portrait of George III visible behind her in the lobby. I can't seem to find or come up with any meaningful connection that he might have had to policing or Scotland Yard, so I assume this is part of the charming British tick of simply slapping random monarchs on every available bit of wall space, but if you have any insight into whether George III had any passion for police work, drop me a line at costumedramarewind at gmail.com. 
So in the scene in season two, episode two, where Millie, Lucy, and Jean have their showdown with the rogue scientist who had killed Dr. Richards, he freaks out and shoots Jean in the leg because he thinks they're spies. And not without good reason, it turns out. From the 1930s to the 1950s, the Cambridge spy ring infiltrated various governmental agencies, including MI5 and MI6, and the upper echelons of British society. It's often referred to as the Cambridge Five, because these five men, Guy Burgess, Donald McLean... Oh my god, the guy who wrote American Pie was a spy? Your jokes. <laughs> Kim Philby, John Cairncross, and Anthony Blunt, who was Queen Elizabeth's third cousin were recruited to spy for the Soviet Union during and after their education at Cambridge University. In the early 50s, the British government started closing in on them, and Philby tipped off Burgess and McLean that they were under suspicion. This led to the two disappearing in 1951, which was a major news story. In 1956, it was released to the public that they had defected to the Soviet Union. Philby defected in 1963, and in 1979, Margaret Thatcher had to make an announcement in Parliament about Blunt's involvement. And she was pretty blunt about it. John Cairncross, who had worked at Bletchley, made a confession in the 1960s and then became a French literature expert. As one does. The Cambridge Five were responsible for handing hundreds of documents to their Russian contacts, including intel from Bletchley Park, and their exposure severely strained the relationship between the UK and US intelligence communities because some of these men had worked with American officials, and three of them had even been posted in DC for a while. So one of my favorite little tiny micro genres of history is ripperology. And she says, I'm the nerd. I'm pretty sure Edward VII actually did it all. But Jack the Ripper casts a long shadow in the British imagination. And there are a number of threads and plot points throughout the Bletchley Circle that echo ripperology. Early on, Susan's husband makes a fairly priggish comment that the young women being attacked weren't quite our sort. This kind of first puts me on the trail, because this also reflects the Victorian sentiment that surrounded the Ripper's victims, that since they were sex workers, they probably deserved what they got. The part that was also really evocative to me were the efforts to trace the patterns and commonalities among the young women. In Ripperology, you have what are known as the Canonical Five, five murders which, because of the fact patterns, are almost certainly all the work of the Ripper, and then there are a bunch of outlying murders that might or might not have been his work, and to this day, people expend an enormous amount of time and effort tracing and retracing the patterns to try to identify possible killers or additional victims, really trying to make sense out of the senseless in much the same way that the women of the Bletchley Circle are doing rather more successfully. Hey, I've got an idea for season three. <laughs> Bletchley Circle producers, call me. So finally, the big question, how many hats? So I wish I could give different ratings for each season. I'd give season one a 3.5 and season two a three. For me, Anna Maxwell Martin's acting as Susan was a key feature of the first season because of her struggling with having to hide her wartime past and skills from her husband because of the Secrecy Act, and the settling she's had to do with her life since then. I assume her early departure from the show in Season 2, Episode 2 was probably because of other project commitments, but replacing her part of the circle with Alice Marin, the woman who they got released from jail, just didn't seem satisfying to me. I also liked the first season best because of that sense of purpose you could feel from the women using their skills. Anyway, I'm going to say overall, three fabulous scarf headbands. You know what? I'm going to go with a solid three and a half fabulous scarf headbands. I didn't love it, but it was a really fun diversion and a group of women who I would like to be friends with. I mean, without all the murder. Maybe with all the murder. Anyway, I think what's really interesting here is seeing a group of people who have been through this big, huge historical event and seeing how it shapes their later lives. And that's a framing device that I'd really love to see more of. So finally, a few sundry other notes. 
The ongoing restoration work at Bletchley Park is really interesting. A charitable trust to begin preserving the site wasn't formed until 1992. Since then, they've done a ton of work, and the site underwent really extensive restoration at the beginning of this decade. Now the staff there are in a race against time to record and tell as many stories as possible, since obviously the generation that worked at Bletchley are almost gone. They got a big shock earlier this year when some video footage of the war years at Bletchley turned up. Because of the need for secrecy, almost no photos or videos of its time as an active military installation exist, so this was a really huge historical find. They have some great online exhibits at their website and even a podcast of their own, which is probably, okay, definitely much better than ours, and which I'll link to in the show notes at CostumeDramaRewind.com. If you're in the UK, you can see an original Enigma machine at the Churchill War Rooms, one of my all-time favorite museums, and here in the States, you can see one at the NSA's National Cryptologic Museum at Fort Meade, Maryland, which is currently closed because of waves handed everything, but we hope to see reopen soon. There's also a royal connection to the Bletchley Circle. Her Royal Highness, the Duchess of Cambridge, a.k.a. Kate Middleton, mm. has family members who worked at Bletchley Park. According to one Telegraph article, her grandmother Valerie Middleton, nay Glassborough, and her great-aunt Mary, who were twins, were stationed in Hut 16 to decrypt Nazi code. Valerie was also in the room when word got to top Bletchley officials before it came official news that the Japanese were surrendering. The Royal British Legion supports the British Armed Forces and their families, and they sell all sorts of poppy merchandise as a fundraiser. One of the poppy brooches they sell is the Codebreakers brooch, in honor of all the Bletchley workers, and Kate Middleton has it. And that'll be my Christmas present, right? We'll find out. Have you been naughty or nice? <laughs> <laughs> if I keep telling jokes... I'll, that'll definitely... Anyway. Anyway, there's a spin-off series, Bletchley Circle San Francisco, that's available via BritBox. I don't have that service, and that spin-off has a ton more episodes, so we didn't include it for our episode of this podcast, but I hope to watch it all at some point. Finally, psychosexual warfare, as referenced in the show, is as old as time itself, and both the Allied and Axis powers used sexually charged psychological warfare during World War II. A lot of the German propaganda materials were meant to drive a wedge between the different Allied powers, like cartoons in which a French soldier's fiancé is sleeping with a British infantryman, as if. The British only released a few different types of these pornographic materials, unlike what the show implies, and in any case, they were all a lot less effective than anyone had thought they might be, and some of the pieces have actually become collector's items. So, uh, for more information about 20th century informal markets in the UK, read Mark Rudhouse's Black Market Britain, 1939 through 1955. That sounds like a barn burner. And you can read more about the Cambridge Five in the fascinating book, My Five English Friends, written by Yuri Modin, their Russian handler. Join us next week as we tackle Bobby, an ensemble cast film from 2006 that covers the final hours of Robert F. Kennedy. That sounds really depressing. Remember to check out our show notes at CostumeDramaRewind.com, and thanks for listening.